0: other tiny little countries in the world uh, are perfectly capable of running themselves but we uniquely as the fifth trading nation biggest trading nation in the world a country that used to run most of the world a country that has soft power that is beyond what any other country can dream of in terms of our language and our culture and our influence on the world the idea that we uniquely are incapable of running ourselves because we need help from fucking belgium (laughs) is absolutely i mean it's patently ridiculous when you say it like that
1: Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Julia Hartley Brewer. Julia is one of Britain's best known broadcasters and commentators She is currently presenter of The Breakfast Show on Talk Radio, having previously worked at LBC. She's worked for numerous newspapers, including The Evening Standard, The Guardian, and The Sunday Express, where she was political editor and later assistant editor. She's a frequent TV pundit, and she is a firm supporter of Brexit. Julia and I both spoke at the brilliant Leave Means Leave rally in London recently. She's also a staunch Republican, which makes me warm to her even more. Julia has been involved in her fair share of controversies. She was banned from the Labour Party conference for taking the mickey out of their safe space. Even more scandalously, she refused to take part in a witch hunt against a politician who had touched her knee, which in this era of Me Too makes her a self-hating woman or something. We'll talk about that later. Julia, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, as a self-hater, I'd like to clarify I'm a Republican with a small R, not a big R. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I feel, I feel that's the need a, to clarify that's that, a that very for international
1: m- listeners. Very important clarification. Uh, I want to kick off, of course, with Brexit. Um, and I want Is that to still a thing? it's still a thing. It's still ongoing. Lots of people are saying they're bored of it, which I find strange. The first question I wanted to ask you was we now seem to be arriving at the possibility which Even I, who had very little faith in the political class to begin with, would never have expected the possibility that the largest democratic vote in the history of this nation might not actually be acted upon. Where do you stand right now? Optimistic, pessimistic, worried, revolutionary? All
0: (laughs) of the above, at at all times. Um, Yeah. I have to say, I worked in the House of Commons for about 10 years uh, with a, a lobby pass. Um, where I, my, People know where the Big Ben clock is in the clock tower. I, I had an office directly below that um, for many years. And so I know lots of MPs and you know, I was at university with the People came to my wedding. I thought of these people as really, I've got to be honest, I, I, MPs get slagged off a lot for being very dishonest people, uh, just in it for the money. Actually, no, actually most of them, I think, genuinely think they are doing good and are good people. And they work very hard, et etc. et cetera. So, I've got to be honest with you, it never occurred to me for a moment Mm. when we had the 2016 campaign that MPs wouldn't, to a man and a woman, abide by the result of the referendum. I thought other people might not want to. But I genuinely was that trusting. And I... When we talk about people being lied to in the campaign, I always think, yeah, well, that was the big lie, that people would accept a democratic vote. Mm. Um, I'm blown away by the lack of respect for democracy. Uh, On my radio show this morning, I was talking about, I'm so fed up of the the C word, uh, the the consensus word, the compromise. (laughs) Oh, we we love the C words now, don't we? Uh, And they are now C words to me. uh, (laughs) Because uh, actually, the only people who want consensus and compromise are the people who lost. And, and I, every single day I ask people the same question. If, had, if Remain had won, 52%, 48% leave, what would have been the compromise offered to us? And to a man and a woman, they all say, well, no, we'd we have stayed with the status quo. So we'd still have remained. So why does the leave vote have to compromise? The yeah. fact that they justify it by saying, oh, you know, look, it's for the good of the country. Look, you know, in sorrow rather than in anger. And, and it's all about just doing the right thing because we just can't all agree, they say. I mean, virtually with tears in their eyes. Actually, they think that the stupid, probably racist Leave voters got it wrong and they need saving from themselves. This is 18th century Noblesse Oblige. That's all it is. <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. The stupid plebs got it wrong. They need to be saved from themselves.
1: But it, it, I completely agree with that. And it, I sometimes feel like I'm banging my head against a brick wall because... Because it, it, be- you are. Because I am. <laughs> I am all the time. But in media circles in particular, where ah. we kind of mix for, for good or ill, um, it, it's it can be quite difficult to convince people of the reality of that situation you've just described, where, to me, it seems perfectly obvious, as plain as day, that what's happening is that we have a, a largely Brexit-supporting public, a, a massively Remain-supporting establishment, um, and the establishment is trying to thwart what the public voted for. So uh, I think, historically speaking... It's one of the gravest crises of democracy since we all got the vote yes. in 1928, exactly. and from that period it's on. It's
0: not an economic crisis. I mean, we've yeah. had uh, only today, we're recording the, the Cabinet Secretary, as Mark said, will happen to have done a... Rep- he's written a re- memorandum for the Cabinet, which is, I mean, I mean, amazing coincidence, this. This is the most incredible coincidence. It's leaked to a newspaper. The Daily Mail, which is now, of course, <laughs> yeah. a, a solidly not Remain supporting officially, but a withdrawal agreement, which is Remain light anyway, supporting... I mean, I mean, it's all just a complete coincidence it's come out today. I mean, imagine everyone's surprise and shock sure, <laughs> and horror. Um, but basically talking about the economic dire circumstances. I'm not, I'm sure we're giving away our firstborn, uh, locust. I mean, the full works, everything's in there. Uh, usual Project Fear stuff. Uh, but it's not about economics, actually. I think you, you, it's perfectly reasonable for someone to say, I think economically this would not be good for the country or I think economically this would be great for the country, which is where you and I are. Um, no one voted to be poorer, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But, but even if you think that, that's completely irrelevant. I, for instance, have voted for many uh, Labour governments over the years. Uh, I've voted for Labour, Lib Dem, UKIP and Tories over the years. I am genuinely a floating voter. And um, I happen to think, though, that this particular Labour government, the <laughs> Labour, Labour Party, led by Jeremy Corbyn, would be an absolute disaster for our nation, particularly economically, but in many other ways as well. Jeremy Corbyn is completely and utterly unfit for public office. However, if the British people, in their wisdom, choose to vote for him, that is their choice, and they and I will all have to live with the consequences. So, the idea that because you think what the people have chosen is not good, that you get to just overturn it. It's a really bizarre concept. I mean, this is a crisis of our democracy. It's a crisis of trust. It's not about the economics anymore.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I find that the more the economic argument is pushed, particularly by the Project Fear Brigade, the more it becomes a way of deflecting attention from the core issue, which is should the people have the right to decide the future of the nation or not? Because we all thought that we lived in a country in which that's pretty much what happened. Now we all know that politicians lie sometimes, or they backtrack on their manifestos, or they do things in a shoddy way that they promised to do in a decent way all of that stuff is par for the course but we all thought we lived in a country in which one man, one vote, or one person, one vote from the 1920s onwards. But it seems now that we don't. And I think that's the, the thing about Brexit that strikes me. And this, I think, was apparent on the demo that you and I both spoke at, which had, a, which had an incredibly good atmosphere.
0: I was, I was really buoyed up by the atmosphere. Really actually. good atmosphere.
1: It was very good nature, but it was also quite angry. And the thing that I, struck me most is that the thing that people were most interested in talking about and the thing that got the most cheers when any of us on the platform raised it was the issue of democracy. And the question of whether our voices count or not. So um, in terms of the historic sense, to what extent do you think the overturning of Brexit, which seems like a real possibility, uh, because even if we end up with what they call Brexit, we all know it's not Brexit. It's, it's not even Brexit by name only. It's just remain yeah. doled up to look like something else. To what extent do you think that will shatter people's trust in democracy and, and maybe shatter democracy itself?
0: Um, hugely, but I'm not quite as pessimistic as you. When I, when I go through the options, and of course I speak to, like you, lots of MPs and other people campaigning behind the scenes, uh, I think it's very likely that we're going to get either a long extension, um, some terrible version of, of Brexit foisted on us, um, something, something that's not good this year, however... I am pes- I'm, I'm pessimistic about the next few days and weeks, but I'm not pessimistic about the future. I think Brexit is something that, you know, <laughs> it's out of the bag now. You <laughs> <I> know, <laughs> that ship has sailed, people. Yeah. Um, the EU is facing pressures, not just from everyone talks about how they, they laugh at us. Uh, look at what's happening in France, what's happening in Italy, in Spain, in Germany, in Holland, in France. I mean, for goodness' sake, uh, and, and the pressures you're getting from Eastern European states as well. There's no question at all that the EU's plan for this great federalist state is. is moving forward you know blindly on this train and they are not taking the european people with them but but allied to that they certainly aren't taking the british people with them i think the political classes and the media class uh and i know there are lots of you know the telegraph and other papers and the sun supported brexit but the media class by and large now is signed up to the withdrawal agreement and and you know uh this version of remain light um and you've got the BBC and Sky and everyone else as well. Um, there is no doubt at all that, you know, you take the civil service, the, 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 the politicians, the media class, it, the whole establishment who all think that the voters made a terrible mistake and mm. they didn't listen to us clever people yeah. when, when, in, when, the, when we cast our votes in 2016. They are completely deluded about what is going to happen about this? because if they genuinely think and it's something i said in the speech i gave at the leave means leave rally if they genuinely think that 17.4 million people are going to go oh well fair enough yeah oh no 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 sorry sorry we listened to all the arguments for months for the campaign and we've had almost three years of dealing with being told we're racist and stupid and ignorant and everything else but you've decided you know better than us absolutely fine, we'll just carry on with our lives (laughs) as you were. They are, I mean, the political classes are insane if you think that. Now, we may not go around, you know, setting fire to cars and smashing up shop windows and uh, rioting on the streets like Parisians do. You know, we're not French. It's not what we do. But um, very ordinary people living very ordinary lives who've never gone on a demonstration, they don't sign petitions and they don't shout at people in the street to get angry uh, or carry placards. They are very... Very angry. And if these politicians who are trying to undermine Brexit think they're going to get away with this, I think they are very wrong. We haven't got a Leave voting parliament. We've got a 75% plus Remain voting parliament right now. Well, at the very latest in 2022, we won't have. And I'll tell you why. It's because voters won't forget. They never do. They will punish. And they are going to make sure that they, in the vast majority of constituencies, which are leave voting constituencies, that this is the issue they vote on. And politicians think we're all bored with it and it's going to go away. It's not going away. We're not going to be bored with it. And we are going to make our voice heard. I think Brexit will happen within the next five years. I personally would rather have an extension I would rather wait it out, get proper Brexit so we can get all the benefits from it. But I don't think we should be downhearted. I think that, that cat is out of the bag. That is going to happen.
1: Yeah, I actually agree with that. I'm pessimistic in the short term, in the specific sense of Brexit happening anytime soon. And, that, and it makes me angry, like it does many people, because you think, God, it's three years since we voted to leave the European Such Union. A long and time. we're still no closer to leaving. Um, so I'm pessimistic in that sense. But I think your. Um, uh, suggestion for optimism in the longer term is actually very strong. Trust the put. British people. They, the British they generally people.
0: make the right decision. If you look back at all the general elections when they've delivered either a coalition government or a majority government for any particular party, if you actually look back, yeah, you know what, given the choices you made the right decision. Yeah.
1: And and then of course as you say there is the European context because the fact is that um I mean firstly the impo- you make a very important point which is that Brexit happened and it can never be made to unhappen. I mean they can beat it up and dilute it and thwart it and maybe even prevent it from happening entirely. Let's see what happens there. But maybe we'll have could, another
0: royal ba- if we have another royal wedding a royal baby we'll all forget we'll about it. We'll all forget
1: it. it. That's what they're hoping. We'll just kind of erase <laughs> it from the memory but the truth is it will always have happened. So it will always be this huge democratic mark. In the history books of the United Kingdom, which is very exciting and which terrifies all of them, the fact that it will exist forever. But then, of course, across Europe, you've got the gilets jaunes in France, you've got the rise of populist parties in Italy and Germany and Spain and uh, across the continent. so uh, I think that the exciting thing about the period we live in is, which is, is that that kind of managerial, technocratic, yeah. incredibly elitist class of people who've been running politics for a good 30 yeah. years now, are under extreme pressure. And I think that's one of the reasons they lash out so viciously yes. against the stupid electorate is but because they recognise how much pressure they're under. They
0: do, but they still think we're wrong. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this is At no point has there been any a awakening of, yeah, we can see why this. People aren't happy about this lack of accountability. Um, and, I mean, the extraordinary thing we had the other day, where um, the twenty ninth of March was no longer a leaving date, It's shrined in law under the revoking of you know on the triggering of Article fifty, and and then the prime minister goes to an EU summit, does a deal, and agrees. No, it turns out it's now either the twelfth of April, or the twenty second of May. Oh, but, but but EU law that overrides uh, British law. It's like. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what do you think we were voting for? And this is the thing, I, I became a Eurosceptic um, simply actually from being a political editor. Um, and and I, my, the amount of times I mean, went, to, you know, went to Brussels and saw, wow, check out this gravy train. Mm. You know, everyone who goes to Brussels mm. grows, you know, goes native very quickly. But also, if one more press officer or one more cabinet minister said to me, either on or off the record, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's an EU directive, it's nothing to do with us. One more time, I don't want, when we leave, and we will, it's a when, not an if, when we leave, I don't want any other cabinet minister, minister, MP or, or press officer ever to be able to say to anyone ever again, yeah, but we don't have any say over that. I want my government yeah. to be fully accountable to me as a voter. I don't want anyone making any decisions for my country that are not agreed by MPs or by the government of this country that I get to have a say in
1: Absolutely, and the, th- th- that I mean, was that's the a point- weird. That's
0: a weird view, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's literally how <laughs> most countries in the world are run. Yeah. but
1: <laughs> it's the it's it's the view. This is the this is the thing that's actually equally hilarious and terrifying. It, it's that view which motored pretty much every revolt in English history for the past four hundred years, which is the idea that people ought to have a say via the people they elect on what laws are made and what laws they should live by. So uh, it's interesting you say that because. Um, like you, I'm a, a profound Eurosceptic, and like you, I'm a Eurosceptic entirely, virtually entirely, from the basis of the democratic question, from the very simple point that if there's a law or a regulation that I'm expected to abide by, I want some capacity to have a say on it. It doesn't mean I'll be able to overthrow it on my own, but I want to be able to contribute to the makeup of the institutions that pass that law. I mean, it's very, very, very simple. But one of the things that's said about Euroscepticism is that it's just this hard right thing, it's racist, it's xenophobic. And I find that one of the most frustrating arguments, because in fact, when I've spoken to leavers, whether it's on rallies or in public conferences, or wherever it might be, of course, lots of them raise the immigration question, lots of them raise the question of freedom of movement. Um, But one of the overriding questions that they raise is, well, who runs our country? And shouldn't I have some input? And I think that's in the nature of Euroscepticism,
0: all of the polling, uh, it, all of the polling throughout, has shown that the key issues are about sovereignty and democratic accountability. Those are the issues. Of course, there are racist people who voted Leave. There are racist people who voted Remain. I've, I've met openly racist Liberal Democrats and Greens, for goodness' <laughs> sake. I mean, there are racist people in every walk of life. But for a start, we know that this is actually one of the most least racist societies uh, in in Western Europe. All the polling shows that. Um, but also, the idea that wanting to limit the migration of white European people yeah. to this country, um, um, <laughs> above racist. all else. I mean, it doesn't even make sense to me. Um, and I knew so, so many people who, who are uh, minorities who voted uh, Brexit. Yeah. We know that like 30, 40% yeah. of uh, black and, uh, and Asian people in this country voted for Brexit. I'm assuming they're all racist as, against black and Asian people as well, I suppose. But I suppose we're all, we're all racist against Romanians and Bulgarians and French people. I, I, I just think this is such a... It's such an easy slur to throw at people and... And I mean, the racism word, the R word is just completely thrown around. Yeah, the other day before the Leave Means Leave rally, I did tweet out, and it basically as a joke, but look, you know, I know how angry you are about this, uh, you know, not Brexit being thwarted, we should have been leaving today, but, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't shout abuse, don't, don't get violent, don't attack police officers, don't, we don't set fire to cars. We're not French, for fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> quite, you know, it got you know, 10,000 likes or something, a, a, a bit of fun. And then I had an awful lot of people saying to me, oh, you know, you had to say that because you know you're all violent and horrible. But quite a few people said, oh, racist against the French. Oh, my goodness. And you just, <laughs> head in hands, like, are the French Bizarre. a different race from us? I don't know. But also quite clearly a joke. You know, my biggest issue with Remainers is not them calling us racist. It's the fact that most Remainers don't seem to have a sense of humour. Which I think, frankly, frankly, you think they have been living in Britain for so long, they'd have got one by now. To to, mis, to misquote a, a party leader.
1: The crime of humourlessness, I completely agree. But the uh, the racism thing, I think, is interesting because you're right, it's around 30% of um, BME, I hate that phrase, but yeah. black, and well, voters, yeah. <laughs> black and Asian voters. I didn't use it. Black and Asian voters. Voters who voted for Brexit and in fact many of them voted for, not all of them but many of them voted for Brexit because they think the freedom of movement rules are racist because yeah. it allows freedom of movement for predominantly white Europeans but makes it incredibly difficult as a consequence, for their family members and other people, but to join also because
0: them. a lot of people, I think, minorities tend, uh, are, are because only first or second generation in this country are uh, in lower social economic groups, yes. where they are most hit yeah. by uh, lower paid, uh, cheap work, you know, cheap labor. Effectively,
1: I think the um, I think the racism issue is is really interesting because that's the the thing that gets thrown at mm. Brexiteers most often. And um, I wanted to ask you about the way in which Leave voters are spoken about because. I can't remember any time in my lifetime when there has been such um, open, naked, snobbish contempt for the majority of society, for the masses, as they used to say in the old days. And it's almost as if, you know, they say that the Brexit vote unleashed um, latent racial prejudices in society. I think there's actually very little evidence for that. What it did unleash, unquestionably, is the latent neo-Victorian prejudices of Sections of the middle classes and the upper middle classes. John so Snow
0: on Channel John 4. Snow. I've never seen so many white people in one place. What, what, what apart from the Remain rally the week beforehand <laughs> yeah. or, or the Hay Literary Festival you attended the year Absolutely. before? Oh, and Glastonbury, you were at the one where you shouted fuck the Tories. The, those events, which are almost entirely white. Again, I'm as if in some way this is, this is a bad thing. 90% of the country is white, by the mm. way, small point. But no, but the, the vitriol against ordinary people, uh, okay, again, you, you're racist. Uh, you're xenophobic. You didn't understand. I mean, leave voters, 17.4 million people, didn't understand mm. any of the issues. Um, but also, you're bad people. Uh, I, I had, in almost three years, living in Ramona Central, where I live in North London, uh, and um, having um, family and friends, some of you extremely staunch Brexiteers like myself, some really staunch uh, Ramoners, not just Remain, Ramon, they want to overturn the vote. Um, I've managed not to fall out with a single person until until two days ago at a at her friend's party, another friend who, um, we were talking about this and she brought up the whole Racist leavers, stupid leavers, vote leave committed, you know, criminal offences uh, with their, their money. And, and apparently my facial expression was not suitable uh, to the conversation <laughs> because I was just smiling in a patronising don't say anything way. But um, it's the first time I've actually fallen out with a friend. And I said to her, you know what the issue is? I, I, in, any other, in any other vote, whether someone said they voted Green or Labour yeah. or Communist yeah. Party or whatever it is, um, she, wouldn't, she would just think, oh, we differ our opinion. But I said, but, but on this issue, you think less of me. Mm. You thought I was bright and you thought I was a nice person. And now you think less of me because I voted leave. Yeah. And you're you're more disappointed in me than, you know, those stupid plebs who apparently don't know enough. I, I'm educated. I know better. And And it is, it's that patronising attitude and that idea that... Uh, remain voters are good moral people and leave voters are somehow out for it themselves apparently we're all making a fortune out of brexit um huge amounts of money we've all got millions in swiss bank accounts everywhere um but also that we're doing it for nefarious reasons we're doing it for bad reasons we're stoking up hatred and and it's it's really depressing yeah
1: it's i I think actually the There are so many good things about the vote for Brexit. I mean, I could spend all day talking about them. For for example, there's the fact that people can think for themselves and don't fall for fear-mongering from the elites, which we had been told people weren't capable of doing. There's the fact people value democracy. People value having some say in political affairs. There are so many good things. But one of my favourite things is that it has cast such a harsh, unforgiving enlightening light on um, the way in which certain sections of society feel about ordinary people. And I think that's actually one of the lessons Mm -hmm. that ordinary voters will take from this, which is, oh, okay, so you really don't like me. You really do think I'm Mm -hmm. stupid and scummy and and xenophobic and and don't know what to think about anything in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually quite an exciting prospect that people wake up will go call. a wake-up call and people will now go forward in political debates and elections with this knowledge which i think could actually shake things up a fair amount
0: absolutely and again i think we all feel like we were duped everyone says we were lied to in the uh, the campaign well, we were we were lied to by the people on the remain side and people saying they were going to respect the result no one else lied in any significant way that would actually affect the outcome we were lied to that there was any point in voting
1: You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. In relation to Brexit, I wanted to ask you uh, one thing about Euroscepticism, which is just what the hell has happened to the left because when you've just described Euroscepticism to me i thought that's a good description and it's the kind of thing that um tony Benn might have said and jeremy corbyn might have said yeah um and now a lot of them particularly corbyn who seems to have sold his soul to the devil himself um are now rallying against brexit and for common market 2.0 and so on so
0: in breach of their own manifesto in breach of
1: their own manifesto and in breach of the old Labour left, which was were among the strongest critics of Tony Benn, Bob Crow, yeah, yeah
0: exactly. It, it's utterly bizarre, isn't it? Look, we know in his heart of hearts, Jeremy Corbyn's a uh, a Eurosceptic. There are various reasons why he is a uh, anti-Europe. You know, it's, it's capitalist, it's big, it's big business, uh, but also because the sort of reforms he wants to carry out in government would be very difficult mm. uh, under EU law, um, and you're still constrained by that, whether you like it or not. Um, but uh, look, he's managed to fudge this. I think he's actually played it brilliantly, right. given the the fudge he's had to make between his leave voting uh, constituency voters midwest midlands and the north of England and uh, the remain voters in London where they had dominant the remain uh, uh, party membership the remain dominated Labour MPs on his back benches I mean he's got I think just as difficult job as Theresa May except he's not in office so he can fudge it he's fudged it and fudged it and fudged it he's now being pushed further and further along the line towards a remain position um, and I just say well you know Good luck with going to the polls on that one. I mean, just you know, good luck, mate. Off you go. You go. You go to the polls, promising a second referendum, or you promise uh, to basically keep. I mean, common market. You know, sorry, that single market. That means that means leaving our borders open. That Mm. means anyone can come here and work here and undercut British workers. I'm sorry. Yeah, you you you, by all means, you have that policy. You take that to your voters, Mm. and you see how well that works
1: out. So Labour is screwing up Brexit, you think maybe they're doing so cleverly, but that's what they're doing. Uh, In relation to the Tories, if anything, it's even more shocking, because it's supposed to be the Eurosceptic Party. Um, Obviously, that's not really the case, unless you count the ERG, and even they're wobbling. Um, Do you think The Tories can survive this process whereby the big issue that they always promised their voters they would look at seriously, they're now failing to.
0: Don't care. (laughs) I've had this conversation with a lot of cabinet ministers and former cabinet ministers. They say, look, the thing is, this is going to break up the Tory party. And I'm like, why do I care?" care? I said, I said, if the Tory party is broken up, well, the Labour Party or any party, you deserve it. If you don't deliver on pretty much your only policy that you're elected to deliver on... Then you deserve to disappear. Absolutely, I could not care less. I mean, they—they they put you know Labour <laughs> to shame in terms of their ability to mess this up. But um, no, it's extraordinary. Again, it's—it's it's it's there's a huge lump of I a mean, big lump of Tory MPs on those benches, but it's also a huge load of Remainers. And what we've seen, I think, absolutely extraordinary, is what's been going on in the cabinet. Leading figures like, I mean, Philip Hammond. Um, And Amber Rudd, who in every other area I admire, but but on this issue is completely wrong. Um, And then you've got um, the likes of Dominic Grieve and Nicholas Bowles, who are now the martyrs of Brexit. (laughs) So the two people who have basically nailed the, you know, been bashing the nails in with a hammer uh, to the death of Brexit are now the martyrs. It's absolutely embarrassing uh, the way that they said, oh, don't leave Nick Bowles, we saw in the Commons. These people have totally betrayed their voters, their local parties. Uh, And they're being punished accordingly and good for good for those doing the punishing.
1: I think that's one of the most extraordinary things over the past few weeks and months. Is MPs presenting themselves as the victims of this process? As it, it, basically what they're saying, oh my god, it's so stressful overthrowing democracy. Yeah. It's really having a difficult and, impact and, and on. And you know my what? Life. Some
0: people are getting angry and cross and shouting abuse at <laughs> yeah. us when we try and overthrow authority. Um, Anna Subi in Central Lobby of the Commons the other day said to me, "I'm not coming on your show again because I don't want to be called a traitor again." I said, "I don't think I've ever called you a traitor. <laughs> have I?" But know other people do, and I said, "Well." I mean, to be fair, Anna, Mm. Mm. (laughs) I mean, and she said, I've not been able to go home for two weeks. And I'm thinking, well, that is is wrong in any democracy that anyone can't express their view without facing abuse or, or physical threats. Absolutely. Of course, that goes without saying, except it doesn't go without saying when that all was happening to Nigel Farage. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when the, when the abuse is aimed at the people that the left or the Remain don't don't like, then it's absolutely fine, and frankly, quite funny. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: but when it's happening to them, they don't like it. It shouldn't happen to anyone.
1: But it's funny that you know Anna Soubry and Nick Bowles and Dominic Grieve and and all the people who've rushed to their to back them, which is pretty much the entire establishment. What's striking is that they're always saying, "How dare you call us traitors? How dare you call us enemies of democracy?" And at some point, you think. Okay, you do protest too much because they
0: don't think they are. They really don't No, know. because they genuinely believe that they are doing the right thing. They, I, I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing to accept them. They actually genuinely think the voters are stupid. They got it wrong. This will be catastrophic. I'm doing the right thing for the country. Um, and therefore I'm saving again, saving us from uh, us from ourselves. Um, but again, that attitude is, on that basis, why don't we just live in a, in, you know, in, in a country without democracy at all? Why go through the motions? Why, why were they all celebrating uh, last year about women getting the vote? And yeah. everyone always forgets, working class men yeah. for the first time getting the vote. And then, <laughs> and, then and then, the next year, fact, two years after the referendum, um, actually say, well, I know we gave you the vote, but you're not really up to the job. So we're going to take the job from you.
1: I mean, that's such an important point because it's actually, all joking aside, it's actually really grotesque because when we were in Parliament Square at this recent Leave Means Leave rally, um, I was walking around the square and I passed the statue of Millicent Fawcett, uh, which was unveiled last year as part of the 100th anniversary of celebrating the 1918 Mm -hmm. Representation of the People Act. Everyone cheering and whooping. Theresa May was there. All these feminists were there. I think Sadiq Khan was there. All these people who have now are openly conspiring to overthrow a vote which includes the votes of 8 million women, which includes the votes of millions of working class people. I mean, it is staggering, the levels of hypocrisy. But what the final question I want to ask you in relation to the Brexit thing is, is in relation to that kind of process that's taking place. To what extent do you think we've realised that we all, you know, us too, and many 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 others oppose the European Union we think it's undemocratic we think it's a, a gravy train we think it's staffed by awful people but hasn't Brexit revealed that the genuine anti-democratic issue Lies at home because what is happening, and I think you've uh, touched on this, is that uh, politicians deflect their own responsibilities onto this EU. technocracy. Yeah. So the, the the real battle, I think, is going to take place here. But
0: that was always the issue, and this extraordinary idea that well, you know, if we can't agree a consensus, then we then we should remain because that's a fair thing. Uh, and we well, we should have had more than more than fifty two percent of people to have a change. It should have been sixty percent or sixty six percent. Well, hold on a minute. I don't remember anyone arguing for that when all those powers were handed over to the EU yeah. when the Lisbon Treaty was. I mean, there was an EU constitution that was drawn up. Oh, it turns out a few countries who had to have a, a, a referendum on that were, decided to vote against. So well, We just won't call it a constitution then. Uh, the, the blatant way in which the EU has gone about this, I mean, creating this federalist state in the face of huge, huge opposition across Europe. Again, it's not, we're constantly told it's just here. It's not, it's across Europe Um, is absolutely extraordinary. They will not listen. They will keep telling us to vote again and vote again. But yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, it was, look, it was British MPs who and civil servants and the establishment who handed those powers over to the EU. God knows why. Um, But as I said at that rally last Friday, it's really simple. If the MPs, 650 of them, if they genuinely don't think that they are capable of making decisions to run our country, then they have no business being in that job. Stand down, we'll elect someone who does. Because if you don't think that this country is capable of running itself, I mean, all these other tiny little countries in the world uh, are perfectly capable of running themselves, but we uniquely, as the fifth trading nation, biggest trading nation in the world, a country that used to run most of the world, a country that has soft power that is beyond what any other country can dream of in terms of our language and our culture and our influence on the world, the idea that we uniquely are incapable of running ourselves (laughs) because we need help from fucking Belgium is (laughs) absolutely... absolutely I mean it's patently ridiculous when you say it like that but that's what they think
1: that is what they think um and I want to come on now to other things that they think um, there are other things and there are other things they're not profound thoughts but they definitely do have them and just to talk a little bit about the broader political climate which touches on the things we've already been talking about because it does strike me that not only do we live in a pretty um democracy suspicious era but also one that's very suspicious of liberty and particularly the liberty to express yourself some people call it the snowflake era some people call it the kind of generally censorious whatever however we might describe it that's something that you've talked about one thing i want to raise with you is the safe space joke because uh, you got into trouble not only with the labor party itself but of course with the twitterati everyone gets into trouble with the twitterati when you took the mic. Uh, which I'm sure is an anti-Irish racist phrase these so, days. I'm Irish, I'm took, a Right, second. yeah, took the piss, took the mick out of um, a safe space at the Labour Party conference, caused this huge fuss because people were saying it's a, it was a space for autistic people, which was completely unconvincing. But
0: I basically you, showed my hatred of disabled Yes, personally.
1: that's right, yes. you were being disabledist. But can you just tell us why <laughs> you felt moved to mock this safe space and how you view safe space culture more broadly? Well, well
0: again, whenever I've got in trouble for my tweets and I get in trouble quite a lot, it's nearly always one that I've just <laughs> posted without even thinking and I, my, 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 my colleagues at work will say yeah, yeah, that's when you get into trouble. Um, yeah, Genuinely, we arrived at Labour Party Conference, we've got a studio there as lots of uh, radio stations do and, and we get up at silly o'clock, quarter five in the morning to get there in the morning to, to record the, the show live from Party Conference as we've done at Toy Conference as well and I you know, we did a sort of pre-show dash to go and try and desperately find if there was a loo anywhere that was within walking distance and on the way back from the loo passed by this sign saying safe space well (laughs) always (laughs) going to be intrigued of course the the conference centre was completely empty at this time and uh, so I went through uh, to this uh, sign that said safe space and and on one side there was a a prayer room one one room out of this corridor on the other side it said safe space and it quite clearly it didn't didn't say it was a it, it, it didn't say it was for disabled people or autistic people it just said a safe space Um, now we know what safe spaces are we know exactly they are for people who can't cope with hearing alternative viewpoints people who are traumatised by people disagreeing with them which I think is hilarious at a party conference bearing in mind this is the same party conference where a Jewish MP Luciana Berger was unable to walk around within the conference perimeter without police guarding her, within the mm. con- The people who had been approved to allow to be going inside that party conference perimeter were still not considered to be safe enough mm. that a Jewish MP could walk around safely. So um, I, I, <laughs> I thought it was very funny. I got my producer to uh, be knocking on the door of the safe space. Oh, I wonder what's in here. And there's me sitting on the sofa <laughs> going, boom. So, you know, it is funny. It's all very silly. It was mocking safe spaces. It was mocking people who get triggered by hearing alternative viewpoints. Um, so we tweeted it out. I think in the last count, it had a million views. Mm. But this started a very quick backlash. Uh, and there was a formal complaint made. Mm. Uh, disability groups decided to get, you know, Labour disability groups got in. And it, people were told that people had left the conference because they were so traumatised by this. I got a call from the Labour press office basically saying you're going to have to apologise. And I said, no, it's a joke, it's free speech. I was mocking, you know what I was mocking. You were mocking disabled people. No, I wasn't. It went back and forth for quite some time. And um, basically I refused to apologise. So they have told me that I am banned from the next Labour Party conference. I'm unable to broadcast or attend that conference um, because I made a joke, which they say mocked disabled people. It didn't. It no. mocked people pretending yeah. to be disabled, which isn't the same thing.
1: But uh, and, and their response to your video and tweet actually proved the point you were making, which is that we live in this incredibly yeah. hyper-fragile culture in which any kind of off-colour joke or simply controversial, you, you non-mainstream... You don't have to find the joke statement. funny.
0: No. There are plenty of jokes that I have defended for people online. They don't have to be funny or in good taste. It's, it's, it's not you're, you're not the humour police.
1: You describe the climate in which we live as one in which the motto is I don't like what you say or the way that you say it, so I'm going to scream and scream until you give in, say sorry for offending me and shut the heck up. Yeah. And it seems to me that, um, which is obviously, as as that quote suggests, the complete opposite of the Voltairian approach, which is I don't like what you're going to say, but I'll defend to the death of your right to say it, which yeah. was seen for a long time as the proper progressive, decent, liberal way to deal with ideas and uh, living in a pluralist society. That's what liberal used to mean. That's what liberal used to mean. So one of the things that I, in relation to that, I find quite terrifying is the utter transformation of the word liberal. So often today, it's the people who call themselves liberals, or the people who call call themselves lefties, who might traditionally being into at least countercultural speech, freedom of speech.
0: The right to say things that other people are upset about. That's right. Yeah. And
1: and now they behave like the Mary Whitehouses, wanting to shut things down. So how do you think that came about? And God, what do you think can be done about it?
0: God knows. What well, I think what needs to be done about it is people need to stop saying sorry. The people need to stop uh, thinking that saying sorry makes it better and, and takes the heat off them. I, I refuse to apologise for anything that I do. I, I don't think I do go around uh, deliberately trying to offend people. If what I say offends people, well, fair enough. I had an argument even at my daughter's school when she was at primary school. Uh, and, and mm-hmm. Someone said, oh, you know, but that can, can be said to defend, you know, that's offensive. And I said, well, it's not offensive. You're saying you're offended by it. Do you see the difference? This is with the PTA. I don't get on well with the PTA. Um, uh, but, but, and, I, and they said, well, that's the same thing. And this was a teacher. And I said, but but, but no. I said, well, OK, so when I, when I was at university and I had a very long term relationship with a black man and I'm a white woman and we walked down the street and there would have been some people who would have been offended by that mm. because they don't think mixed race relationships are acceptable. So does that mean our relationship was offensive? Mm. She went, no. I said, so, so we've established the difference between those two words then. <laughs> and that's what we need to do. We need to establish the difference between not liking what someone says uh, and and, 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 and then establishing that they, they are still allowed to say it. Uh, I did a speech uh, for um, the PPE Society at Oxford University a few months ago. Um, and uh, mostly very sensible people, quite a few little fragile snowflakes in there. The looks of horror on their face when I say things like, Yes, I th- you know well. Well, would you allow people to say anything? Well, yes, <laughs> yeah. you know, other than in, other than what's against the law. You know, you can't go around saying go and punch Brendan. Mm. Um, you know, that's that's not allowed. That's inciting you know, or go and punch black people or or I hate. You know, you shouldn't you shouldn't be allowed to incite hatred or violence against people. However, um, I did say yes, I would take it to the extreme of yes, I think people should be allowed to deny the Holocaust. Uh, they looked at me in absolute horror yeah. and said seriously. If you don't think that we are unable to prove that the Holocaust did happen and was a bad thing, then, my God, we don't deserve to have free speech at all. This idea that if someone says something that's either not true or, or, in inverted commas, offensive, that we must all sort of, you know, faint onto our chaise-longs, I find very bizarre, as opposed to argue back. Yeah defend what you believe defend what you know is right argue back defeat people using your words rather than your your sort of your your fainting
1: there's this bizarre idea that freedom of speech is entirely about freedom for the speaker so, if you defend, for example, freedom of speech for Holocaust deniers yeah. or for Tommy Robinson or whoever it might be, people think you are on the side of those people When in fact well, they, large... they,
0: they accuse you of being a, a defender of those people. a
1: defender of those people and uh, where the truth is a large part of freedom of speech is the freedom of the audience to push back to listen and hear anything they want to and to push back to yeah. argue, to use their own voices but there's an, there are cases in which um, the censorship of ideas or, or the kind of snowflakey desire to crush offensive opinion actually becomes quite dangerous. So one thing that you've written about a lot and I've written about it too is the issue of Islamist extremism yeah. and in particularly the Charlie Hebdo massacre, you criticized newspapers for refusing to show any of the Charlie Hebdo cartoons and and I
0: I I was I was really trying at the time when that happened I really wanted every single editor of every national newspaper and magazine every publication on the same day to publish a cartoon on their front page the same cartoon um, one of the the innovative comments inoffensive ones but one of the you know depicting Muhammad in a a very positive light with Jesus or whatever they want to do to say as a nation Mm. no we will not be silenced. We, we, we do not have a blasphemy law in this country anymore and we will not be told what we can and can't print under pain of death. But it's... But, and, and they didn't. They, they didn't. wanted
1: And they didn't. And I remember at the time, around that time, you said that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily walk through the streets with a photograph of Muhammad on a T-shirt because it's not safe and that in itself is a problem. Yep. But what ought to have happened, particularly in the media world and in, in, in the supposedly... in the world of the supposed free press is that there ought to have been more solidarity with Charlie Hebdo. But I think it's one of those Oh, there cases... was at the
0: time. A lot, lot of pretend solidarity. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: everyone, oh, ev- everyone. Oh, everyone lit a candle.
1: Yeah. Everyone went
0: on a march. <laughs> but what they didn't do, it was then say, we need to defend uh, the right for people to do this. No, well, yeah, but don't offend people with mm. cartoons they don't like. Why not? Mm. We have cartoons about uh, other religions all the time, mocking them. Uh, we have God, we have life of Brian, for goodness sake. How many decades ago was that? Yeah. Um, I, I genuinely think it's terrifying that we are getting a blasphemy uh, law by the back door. And, and it's not out of respect. Mm. It's out of fear. Mm. There are lots of things I don't do or say now uh, because I have a 12-year-old I'd like to keep alive. Thank you very mm. much. And I know too many people, I know too many stories of people who have to have 24-hour security because of things they say, which I believe to be perfectly mainstream, reasonable opinions, but are now considered to be so risky that they are now fearful for their life. Lives.
1: And I actually think though that issue in particular, where there is this desire to clamp down on anything that's supposedly, in quote marks, Islamophobic, actually really reveals how um, censorship can be a far greater driver of violence and intolerance than freedom of speech yeah. ever could be. So that's where I think the kind of the new generation gets it completely yeah. wrong, because if you put a if you erect this kind of moral force field protecting Muhammad or Islam from criticism, what you do is encourage Islamists to see their religion as perfect, as unquestionable, their prophet as someone who must never be depicted. And so you actually exacerbate their extremist intolerance, whereas freedom just making it fairly normal to take the mick out of Islam and like everything else. that doesn't
0: include people, and we've seen some horrific acts, where people, you know, standing outside at someone's mosque, you know, yeah. with bacon and things. No, that's just being rude. Yeah. I mean, quite apart from whether yeah. it's criminal or not, it's just being rude and just disrespectful. Um, look, I, I was raised an atheist by atheist parents. I find, I find religious belief utterly incomprehensible. I, I really do. I, 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 when I've done interviews about Scientology and they're very, very worried, you know, you're going to mock us no more than any other religion. I, I find it all incomprehensible. It's, whether it involves lizards or, or, or Jesus, it's all the same <laughs> to me. It makes, no, it makes no difference. I think it's all really rather bizarre. But it, it's a, these are belief systems that millions, billions of people share. Um, and the right of people, although I don't respect the beliefs, the right of people to believe those things is something I do respect and will defend. Um, and the right to freedom of worship is a crucial right in a democracy, whatever you are worshipping. But again, I just don't like this idea that, if you criticise aspects of one particular religion, it's only one religion, which happens to be the religion where if you criticise, you might end up dead yourself. What does that tell you? Um, That 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 uniquely is is a, a crime Whereas it isn't for any other religion. Oh, you could take the Mick out of Buddhists, Protestants, Catholics. You can take. You can say anything you want about. It. You could just go around and say all Catholics are pedophiles, and people go, yeah, yeah, and nod and not be bothered at all. Yeah. Um, and 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 so. And yet if there's any criticism, the mildest criticism or questioning of some of the tenets of one particular religion, Islam, is automatically greeted by this phrase. And each time you've used it, it doesn't come across on the microphones. You've used the little the little <laughs> rabbit rabbit ears of Islamophobia. Mm. It's not Islamophobia in the same way that criticism. The Catholic Church for paedophilia when they're priests isn't Catholicophobia. Yeah. It, it, these are legitimate questions and issues to be raising in a free democracy.
1: Absolutely. And it reaches a bizarre situation where, even in the wake of extreme acts of Islamist violence, which we've had many in Britain, there have been many across Europe, the worst have happened in France. Um even then there is anyone who says, Oh, Shit, I'm actually quite scared of this. Or I think we mm. should really take it seriously and talk about the solutions to it. Even those people can be written off as Islamophobic, and so I think the the climate it creates is one in which not only are you not allowed to express yourself about a religion, which I think you should be free to, even if you are being rude or or just mocking, being yeah. or mocking. I think that's fine. May might not be big or clever, but it should should be free. But it also creates the far more dangerous situation where you can't even have open, honest discussions about well, cultural tension.
0: Well, and, and that's it. I mean, again, we know what happened with Rochdale and Rotherham where it wasn't, it wasn't because these men were Muslim that these girls were being raped en masse on a regular basis. The reason they were able to carry on doing it was because they were Muslim, because the attitudes of the white police, white social services, white teachers, all the people in authority was, oh, we don't want to be seen to be targeting Muslims. It'll look like we're, we're racist. Um, so that was the reason behind that. But, but the thing is, you don't even have to talk about Islamic extremism i mean anyone sane is terrified of islamic extremism. I'm, I'm terrified of the christian evangelical right who are all you know storing up weapons in in the midwestern america these most serious you know is any religious extremists are scary people um I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit wary of fundamentalists in any religion frankly um but the the thing we need to tackle is in islam quite uniquely compared to other religions because it hasn't seen a reformation yet not a controversial statement many islamic scholars would point this out as well is that um it, there is this battle between some of the values of Islam and the values of we, the Western mm. culture. Now, the Catholic religion is—it's it's on a journey. C of E, full, fully engaged now. You know, women, women vicars and the like, um, you know, embracing—you know—people being gay in the church. Catholic uh, church still on its journey, but I think we—I think we all know it's on its way, and that's mm. what's going to happen because it won't survive otherwise. Um, but uh, Islam, not at all. You know, the vast majority of Islamic states—you uh, know—being gay is a crime. Uh, women are second class citizens. Um, these are really basic things. And, and when these things are imported to our country, uh, and when I say our country, I mean British people of any faith or none are our country. We have imported. This is a new culture to import to our country. Um, and then we see a clash between those values. We as a nation, whatever colour scheme, whatever religion you are, need to assert that our values trump. Mm. They trump the values of 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 this religion that comes in that says that gay people should not only are not equal and shouldn't be allowed to marry; they should be imprisoned, or as the Sultan of has just ruled, they should just be killed, stoned right. to death. Um, that women can sit in the same rooms as men because actually women don't just exist as sexual beings who, if a man sees them when they're praying, will just simply have to rape them. Mm. Women don't have to cover up their hair, let alone their faces. Uh, in fact, I would personally not allow people to cover their faces in in public. Um, uh, because because uh, I, I think it is it's unBritish, frankly. Um, I think all of these things. I think we need to assert as as British values, as Western liberal values. And this clash between feminism and Islam, the clash between gay rights and Islam, um, between the right of people to marry someone of another faith or no faith, to choose whether to have a faith or not. I think we need to have a conversation about. Well, you know, we, we're going to be respectful of your religion, but where it clashes with our values, then I'm sorry, we win. And if you don't like it, whether you're born here or not born here, there are many countries in the world that operate under Sharia law and have those Islamic values. I'm sure you can have a wonderful life there, but no, you don't get to bring those values and impose them on people here. I don't think that's controversial. I think some people listening to this would say you're racist, you're Islamophobe, I think for 99% of people mm. that is a totally uncontroversial thing to say.
1: I agree. And I think the, the it, in many ways it's modern Britain's failure to assert or even define, in some cases, its traditional liberal democratic values. We seem to be embarrassed failures. about we embarrassed.
0: As, as, if somehow, as if somehow because we, we, we don't have it all written down in a big book that was written 2,000 or 1,600 years ago, it doesn't
1: matter. Uh, and it, that acts as a green light to, uh, not communities, but members of communities to... Push back against values to define their own, to make their own community, uh, ethnic bubbles, cultural bubbles, which makes all these problems worse. One more thing I wanted to ask you about, um, which is, I think, probably one of the most rebellious things you have done is refuse to take part in Me Too. And I wanted to ask you about this because, of course, this involves the former Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, who touched your knee on many occasions, no, not I Not on think. many
0: occasions. only a once or Have you met me? What do you think the odds are he touched my knee on many occasions, Brendan? Seriously? <laughs> The story, it was many, I mean, genuinely, it was about God, 20 odd years ago, I'm sure it isn't, it's a long time ago now. He touched my knee under the table at a party conference, it was a group dinner, a Tory party conference, uh, and he uh, kept touching my knee, I kept removing his knee, he said, Michael, get your hand off my knee. He's a backbench MP at this time, I was a political editor, and, uh, and I, and I just t- held his hand under, my, under the table and said, put my hand on his and said, Michael, if you touch my knee again, I'm going to have to punch you in the face. I said it quite nicely <laughs> and very wisely. He removed his hand. I've had very good relationships with him since. I've had him all on my show uh, since uh, he, he actually was forced to resign um, when this all emerged, um, of which I am partly to blame because I had told a story on air without mentioning him, uh, and then the lobby terms were breached. Where there were a number of people who knew this had happened, but it was, I hadn't never named him. I was basically it was outed uh, by uh, the Sun and. Um, but yeah, it turns out it wasn't because of my knee that he resigned. There yeah. were other yeah. issues. But yeah, I, I certainly have uh, the view that the whole Me Too movement got far too far. Yeah, Women being required to have sex with someone or give them head to get a job in a film... Uh, or being told you won't ever work again if you don't do that stuff. Uh, yeah, that's that's wrong. Uh, a bit of office flirting inappropriate enough that, that is dealt with immediately. Can we all move on with our lives, please? But it
1: strikes me that the approach you took in that case, which was to threaten to punch someone in the face if they kept touching I was you, raised. Um, it's is how I'm raising my daughter. <laughs> but I think that's actually a far better and arguably more feministic approach than the current Me Too thing, which is this idea that you can't possibly cope in the situation itself. And I'll and probably need therapy. therapy. You'll need therapy. Well, if you and...
0: recall, the Time, time magazine did uh, their People of the Year and it was all the women of the Me Too movement and they included a lovely former colleague of mine, Jane Merrick, who I love and adore and think she's a great journalist. She was political the independent on Sunday. But she, around the same time, said that he had, uh, Michael Fallon had attempted to kiss her at the end of a lunch when she was working on the Daily Mail as a political reporter. Didn't report this to anyone, very upset by very traumatised by it. Uh, and then she came forward later after the knee uh, hit the front page of The Sun. Um, she was, listed as one of the time women of the year, uh, people of the year. I wasn't. Mm. And the only difference between her and me is that I dealt with it, stopped it, wouldn't have let it happen again, and wasn't a victim. My refusal to claim victim status, because I was brought up by a a mum who was training to be a doctor most of the time of my childhood. The idea that she should have raised someone who was a victim, it's not that I'm not feeling, I'm not seeing it. I just don't view a bloke touching my knee or trying to kiss me as making me a victim. And I think it's quite weird that women in positions of power, by the time you're a reporter on a national newspaper, you are in a position of power. And I have for many, many years looked out for other women in my office and younger women and spoken to senior men and said, look, by the way, they're uncomfortable with that behavior. Don't do it again. Um, I've certainly stepped in on a number of occasions when I have seen things um and, and and try to um mentor young women about you know stop trying to be liked just get get resp- you, you don't need to be liked in an office you need to be respected in an office get on with it and do the job well um and stop trying to make everyone your friend which I think a lot of women do and that's why they don't want to speak out about these things um but then I'm, I'm accused of not being a feminist because I won't play victim and I when did feminism be come about being a victim
1: yeah The final question I wanted to put to you is it strikes me that a lot of the things we've talked about in this past hour, you know, respecting people's democratic rights, um, not being a victim, um, asserting British values, believing that people should be allowed to say pretty much what they want. Those are probably values that a good solid number of British people subscribe to, whereas a hugely solid number of the political classes don't subscribe to. So I think, actually, in terms of the things we've been talking about, one of the great problems we face at the moment is that huge disconnect Mm. between the media class and the political class and ordinary people and I think that's going to blow up.
0: Yeah absolutely and whether it's about the Me Too thing, Islamophobia or um, the latest issue on trans rights, things like that, that there's a new issue that pops up all the time about what you can and what you can't say and I think the vast majority of the British public good people who who are voting either Labour or Tory or Lib Dem are just shaking their heads saying Mm. what on earth has happened to the world Uh, they're not racist, they're not sexist they don't go around sexually assaulting women or or, 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 or Insulting Muslims or, or anything of the sort. But they just think that, that this constant sort of self-flagellation uh, of people in this country, of the British, this, this white guilt, this colonial guilt, this male guilt, this everything, straight guilt, everything. Um, it is boring, it's tiresome, and it's frankly silly. Um, and I think there's just been a real wake-up call that these political classes on the issue of Brexit think they know so much better than us. I don't think they've got a clue, and I think they are going to have a very, very, very rude awakening on all of these issues very, very soon.
1: Julie Hartley Brewer, thank you very much. Thank you.